Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Medical Update on Acute Myelogenous Leukemia, or AML. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other both cancer and blood cancer organizations, which are terrific resources for all of you as well. Um, and um, we have many people on the call today. We have over 328 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, so from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants on the call today from Canada and the United Kingdom, so a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by AbbVie, the Celgene Corporation, an educational grant from Daiichi Sanko Inc., and a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have the best of the best speakers today, so I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mary Elizabeth Purcell, and Dr. Purcell is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Hematology, University of Washington, Assistant Member, Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Attending Physician, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Percival is going to be um, addressing an um, overview of acute myelogenous leukemia, or AML, current treatment approaches, including the role of transplantation, new therapies, and key questions to ask your healthcare team, including your quality of life concerns. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Percival. Thanks very much, uh, Carolyn. So um, for the first few minutes, I want to talk a little bit about AML. Um, it's a cancer of the blood and bone marrow. The leukemia cells um, that are the malignant cells are known as blasts. Everybody has some blasts in their bone marrow, but when there's an abnormal increase in the blasts, that's when we get worried about AML or related diagnoses like uh, myelodysplastic syndrome. Unlike other cancers, there isn't a staging system, so not stage one, two, three, or four, because the blood and bone marrow are kind of a contiguous system throughout the body. And also, unlike some other cancers, it's often diagnosed kind of in a, a short time frame. It's called acute leukemia because it presents in a short time period. So one thing that patients often ask is how common is this diagnosis, and it's not particularly common. There are estimated to be about 21,000 new cases in the United States in 2019, and the median age at diagnosis, meaning that half the people are younger and half older, is about uh, 68. Um, some patients have what's called a therapy-related leukemia. They may have received radiation or chemotherapy for a prior cancer um, in the past or had a different exposure, um, <clears throat> or some patients have had a prior hematologic disorder uh, that has then predisposed them to developing acute myeloid leukemia, but that's probably only in about 15 or 20% of patients. So when patients are diagnosed, um, 
the most important thing to do up front um, is to really try to, or one of the most important things is to try to stratify what their risk is. So that can be done in a variety of different ways. Perhaps the first branch point that we talk about is determining whether they have a subtype of AML called acute promyelocytic leukemia or APL because that's treated very differently than all of the other kinds of AML. And so to do that risk stratification, patients need to generally have a bone marrow biopsy performed at the time uh, that they are first diagnosed. And that can help with uh, sending some testing like chromosome testing or molecular testing, which can help uh, determine what the uh, characteristics are of the leukemia at the time of diagnosis, making some predictions about how the leukemia will respond to chemotherapy, um, but also uh, sometimes helping with targeting therapies and also sometimes being important for um, knowing what markers of disease to follow later when patients have gotten into a remission. Another important thing at the time of diagnosis that really helps to divide patients up is figuring out what their functional status is. So are they fit or are they less fit? And that's important because the most standard chemotherapy um, that is often given, what's called induction chemotherapy, generally requires patients to be fit. So there are a lot of factors that go into fitness. It's kind of a complicated concept to describe and to assess in different patients. There are some scores that get used to try to figure out what patients are fit or less fit, um, but and they're not always entirely related to age, though that is an important concept in terms of thinking about how intensive therapy will be tolerated by the patients that are undergoing the therapy. And so if a patient is fit, they can receive um, intensive chemotherapy that generally involves about a month in the hospital um, where the patients receive chemotherapy, then have the blood counts go down and require a lot of supportive care, including antibiotics and transfusion. And then um, as the counts come back up, a bone marrow biopsy is done to assess what kind of response patients have had to that kind of chemotherapy. And the treatment um, afterwards, after that induction chemotherapy, um, is really dependent on some of those characteristics that were assessed about the leukemia at the time of diagnosis. So um, some patients uh, will have their best chance of achieving cure if they undergo an allogeneic transplant. Um, so an allogeneic transplant um, is uh, a, a stem cell transplant using cells from another person. So um, sometimes other hematologic malignancies are treated with autologous transplants. Auto is self, but with rare exceptions, autologous transplants are not commonly used for patients with AML. And the goal of giving a patient a new immune system is to have what's called a graft versus leukemia effect. So hopefully the new cells from the new immune system from the donor, if they see any abnormal leukemia cells that are still present in the patient, they will um, wipe those out. Sometimes with a transplant in younger patients who are able, and fit patients who are able to undergo what's called a myeloablative transplant, they receive very intensive chemotherapy, sometimes radiation as part of the conditioning regimen with transplant, and that may wipe out um, any residual leukemia cells as well. 
Um, when patients undergo transplant, um, we need to try to find a source of stem cells that they can use for the transplant. Sometimes that is uh, from a related donor, um, such as a sibling who might be a full match for a patient. Sometimes that's a partial match, um, like a half match for a haploidentical transplant. Sometimes that's an unrelated donor from the International Bone Marrow Transplant Registry. Uh, sometimes that's a cord blood unit um, from an umbilical, a stored umbilical cord blood uh, unit or more than one unit that's in a bank. So one question that comes up is when should allogeneic transplant be considered? For patients with AML, typically um, this is done for patients who have certain um, characteristics that make it less likely that their leukemia will stay in a remission, in a complete remission after induction chemotherapy. So they may have certain markers with those chromosome or molecular tests, or they may have a little bit of persistent disease. And often if patients have gotten into a remission and then months or years later if the leukemia relapses, that's generally another indication for thinking about when an allogeneic transplant fits into the treatment algorithm for patients. There are risks of transplant. Um, some of those are the same as risks with chemotherapy, like infections or complications from having low blood counts, other low blood counts like low platelets or low red blood cell counts. Um, but there's another specific problem with transplant called graft versus host disease that's something that we really want to watch out for closely for patients. So they require a lot of intensive monitoring, particularly in the first three months after transplant. In the past um, two years, um, 2017 and 2018 in particular, um, there have really been a lot of new drugs that have been approved for acute myeloid leukemia. So for a long time, um, the standard chemotherapy regimen that is used for induction chemotherapy, so-called 7 and 3, that has been used since 1973, um, but starting in April 2017 with the approval of a FLT3 inhibitor called mitostorin, there's been sort of a flood of new drugs that have been approved. So some of these may be familiar to the listening audience. Some of them may have been um, received by patients that are part of the, the audience. So enacidinib, um, CPX351 or Vixios, the reapproval of Mylotarg or Gemtuzumab ozogamicin, Ivacidinib, um, venetoclax, glasvigib, and gilteritinib. So there's really been sort of a flood of these drugs. I think <clears throat> there have been uh, some issues with some of the recent drug approvals. In general, it's good to have a lot of drugs that are available, um, but uh, that definitely increases the options that we're able to offer patients. Um, but they're, they're, none of them, I wouldn't say, is a complete magic bullet. Um, and a lot of them have been um, approved as single-agent drugs. There are uh, some combination studies going on, for example, with some of the IDH inhibitors, but it may be that um, they're more effective when they're combined with standard chemotherapy, not instead of standard chemotherapy. And I think when patients have several mutations, maybe a FLT3 mutation and an IDH mutation, it's hard to know exactly how to prioritize which of the mutations to treat with a targeted inhibitor, how to sequence the treatments. Um, so I think that those are things that we need to keep uh, examining and understanding as we think about um, what 
these new therapies mean for our patients and how we incorporate them into um, the care of our patients, knowing that there are still a lot of areas where we need to come up with new treatments, like for patients who have relapsed or refractory disease, um, patients who fall into that category that we discussed of being unfit for standard therapy, and then there are a lot of other cellular therapies that have gained traction in treatments for other types of hematologic malignancies like CAR T cells, which are still very, very uh, much in their infancy in the treatment of AML. Um, so the last thing that I wanted to talk about was thinking about questions to ask your doctor or your healthcare team. So I think um, with all of these new drugs, um, there's kind of varying understanding um, about how they'll, they'll fit in, like we discussed. But I think asking your doctor if any of the newly approved drugs are appropriate for the care of your leukemia is important. I think trying to figure out that balance between um, the effectiveness of the new drugs and how well they will be tolerated is also an important question. So trying to figure out um, what the, the balance is between um, the effect that the drugs may have on the quality and or the quantity of a patient's life. I think thinking about um, whether um, a patient is a candidate for an allogeneic transplant and whether that's recommended or not is a really important question. It's sometimes something that can't be answered right when a patient is diagnosed with leukemia, but some of the background work like starting things such as HLA typing to try to make it easier to be able to find a donor later, that can be started early. Um, and so that, that process at least can be going on while the patient is receiving chemotherapy and trying to figure out what response the patient is having. With rare exceptions, maintenance therapy is not commonly used for acute myeloid leukemia. Um, there's that drug that was I mentioned called mitostorin for FLT3 mutated patients. Um, so that would be something to ask if there's a role for maintenance therapy. And then I think um, a couple of other questions just to finish with are whether um, clinical trials might be an option um, to be able to get uh, new drugs or new drug combinations that might not be available otherwise, and then whether a second opinion would be valuable. So I, I often encourage my patients, if they are thinking about getting a second opinion, then they probably should. It may confirm their decision to stay um, at the center where they've gotten most of their care. It may allow them to learn about other options um, and or to seek out somebody who has more of a, a specialty in their particular cancer subtype um, and know what, what options might be available if the current treatments um, are not successful. Um, so I think that's pretty much all that I wanted to say, Carolyn, so um, I'm happy to uh, turn it over now um, unless there's anything else you want me to mention. Oh, outstanding, Dr. Fissel. That was really wonderful. Just an excellent um, overview and introduction and really setting the stage for the entire call and giving all this information to people. So I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Aiton Stein. And Dr. Stein is going to be, um, well, Dr. Stein is a hematologic oncologist, clinical trialist, acute myeloid leukemia. He's with the Leukemia Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Stein will be addressing symptom and pain management tips, 
clinical trial updates, beat AML master trial, and how clinical trials increase your treatment choices. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Stein. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Messner, and thank you, Dr. Percival. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit first about uh, how we manage symptoms uh, in patients who have acute myeloid leukemia. And the symptoms can really come from two places. Um, there are symptoms that exist just from having the disease itself, and those are primarily related to the low blood counts that patients with AML experience. So if you or your loved one has had AML or currently has AML, you'll know that when, uh, when a patient becomes anemic, they may become short of breath, um, they may um, have difficulty walking upstairs, they may feel very fatigued, and really the most important thing is to be sure that um, your physician and you are working together to get your blood work checked uh, frequently so that if you are having symptoms related to anemia or low platelet counts, um, that those can be addressed uh, by a blood or platelet transfusion. Um, sometimes in some places in the country, it can take a little bit to arrange for a blood transfusion, maybe a day or two. So really having a good work stream in place that you can work with with your physician to uh, make sure that um, you're getting the blood products that you need in a timely manner. Of course, there are other symptoms that are side effects of the treatments that uh, we give. Dr. Percival spoke about uh, induction chemotherapy when patients are in the hospital for um, about uh, 30 days um, and getting strong chemotherapy. And the side effects that occur with that strong chemotherapy can be um, some diarrhea, people may get a little bit nauseous, people can get um, mouth sores. The most important thing, instead of uh, giving, giving people sort of the magic tip, which I don't have um, to avoid all those things, is really um, being sure that the nursing staff in the hospital and the physicians in the hospital are being proactive about um, asking, are you having any symptoms? And if you are having symptoms, um, being sure you bring that to your physician's attention uh, right away. There are some patients I see who are in the hospital uh, who feel like they don't want to bother the doctor with what they're feeling. Um, and I, I would just uh, say strongly that, that we want to be bothered and we want, this is why we're doing this. Um, so anything that's really bothering you um, is important that you mention it uh, either to the nursing staff or the physicians or the people who are helping you out in the hospital. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about uh, clinical trials and some updates in clinical trials that uh, are being done for acute myeloid leukemia. Uh, like Dr. Percival mentioned, um, we've really had a rash of drug approvals um, for acute myeloid leukemia in the past three years. And what that's led to are clinical trials that are trying to answer the questions that, that Dr. Percival brought up. That is, what are the best ways to sequence these medications? Is it, with these new drugs that have been approved, um, is there benefit to combining them with other older agents like chemotherapy um, that will help improve the outcomes of our patients with acute myeloid leukemia? Um, is there a role for these cellular therapies? Is there a way that CAR T cells can be expanded to the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia. And one of the things that has been very exciting for us has been a clinical trial called the BEAT-AML clinical trial. So what this clinical trial is about is that it recognizes, as all of the physicians who treat AML have recognized, that the underlying abnormalities that lead to this disease that we call AML can be very, very different. So you might have, per, patient A may have one series of mutations that have led to AML, 
patient B may have a different series of mutations that have uh, led to AML, and patient C may yet have a mixture of patient A's and patient B's mutations um, that have led to the diagnosis of AML. And we talk a lot about what's called precision medicine, that is finding a treatment, a specific treatment that is specific for the a particular subtype or molecular mutations that each individual patient has. And what the BEAT AML master clinical trial attempts to do is it attempts to uh, give patients the personalized therapy either alone or in combination with a standard of care therapy that we hope will benefit that patient the most. So, for example, what happens very practically is a patient will come into my clinic um, and uh, if they have newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia, I'll talk to them about this uh, master beat AML clinical trial. The patient will undergo a bone marrow biopsy that gets sent to a central laboratory where we get the results back within seven days and we see exactly what mutations the patient has. And based on what mutation that patient has, they will be slotted um, into a sub-protocol that we think is best for that particular type of acute myeloid leukemia. So, for example, if the patient were to have uh, a mutation in, in a gene called IDH, they might be slotted into a, uh, the subprotocol that has an IDH inhibitor. If they um, had a mutation in a gene called FLT3, they might be uh, slotted into a subprotocol that specifically targets FLT3. Um, if they have a mutation in a gene called P53, which is often seen in patients with therapy-related AML, there's a separate subprotocol for that patient. And these subprotocols are opening and closing um, all of the time based on, number one, how well the clinical trial is going, how good the results are, and number two, when there are new drugs that are being developed that might target a specific subpopulation of patients with AML, we can open a subprotocol for that specific um, population. Another exciting thing about the BDAML trial is that until very, very recently, it was restricted to patients um, who are 60 years of age or older with newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia. There is now a subprotocol that's uh, available for a specific subtype of AML um, where patients, even under the age of 60, really any adult patient, um, can go on that subprotocol. So we find that very, very exciting, and we're very hopeful that this is going to lead to rapid improvement in our abilities to, um, to treat patients uh, specifically uh, with acute myeloid leukemia. I also want to talk a little bit about um, where we are with new agents. So, you know, like we mentioned before, a lot of new drugs have been approved, and what, what typically happens is you get, you'll get this rash of drug approvals, and then the clinical trials that go on are trying to combine those drugs with standard of care therapies. And I think that's very, very important, like I mentioned previously. There are, though, other um, drugs that are uh, in earlier stages of development that are very, very exciting. I'll just mention a couple of them. Um, so um, one of the new approvals that happened recently was for patients um, who are uh, considered um, unfit for intensive induction chemotherapy or patients who are older than the age of 75. Um, the combination of the older drug called azacitidine with this new drug, which is a drug called a BCL2 inhibitor called Venetoclax, and there are now clinical trials that are aiming to um, improve on that um, combination of therapy um, and understand uh, how we overcome resistance in patients who have been on that therapy and then ended up relapsing. One pathway that is being targeted is uh, this pathway called the MCL1 pathway, and that's a pathway where we think that patients who 
have done well with this venetoclax combination and then relapsed, and maybe it's due to this uh, abnormality in a, gene, in a protein called MCL1. And we now have MCL1 inhibitors that are in clinical trials. Um, one other uh, clinical trial that I, I would mention is a class of drugs. It's got a very long name, which is difficult, called dihydroorotate dehydrogenase inhibitors. And these are drugs where, at least in the, um, in the laboratory, when you give patients, uh, or patients, when you give um, um, uh, uh, laboratory models of acute myeloid leukemia on these drugs, what they do is they, uh, instead of killing leukemic cells, they transform these leukemic cells into normal healthy cells. And these are, there are a variety of these dihydroorotate dehydrogenase inhibitors that are now in clinical studies. I guess the final thing I want to talk about is what I think is really the importance of participation um, on clinical trials. I think that um, clinical trials come in, in different flavors and in different shapes. So you could have a clinical trial where um, you're adding a new drug onto a standard of care therapy, or you could have a clinical trial where, um, where uh, it's a new drug that's just been developed, just been developed in the laboratory, and is now being given uh, to human beings for the first time. Um, all of these clinical trials have been um, really vetted quite well, um, not only by the investigators who are doing the clinical trials, but also by um, the Food and Drug Administration and by um, institutional review boards to make sure that these drugs that we're offering to patients um, really meet the criteria that they are thought to be safe and thought to be that they will potentially help um, patients with this disease. You know, this is a disease that um, we've made really great strides uh, in over the past uh, three years or so, especially with these new drug approvals and with our ability to do uh, allogeneic stem cell transplants for a much larger group of patients than we did before. However, we're really not going to be satisfied as doctors until we are able to cure all patients with this disease um, and cure those patients with a minimum amount of side effects. And the only way we're able to do that is by advancing the science, um, and we do that um, by having patients who hopefully are eager and uh, willing to participate on clinical studies. And with that, I'm going to um, uh, end my comments and, and uh, hand it back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Stein. That was really wonderful and very, very informative and lots of information. I know there'll be questions for you as well as they're coming in uh, during the Q&A, um, so thank you. Um, I'm going to say a few words about cancer care services for all of you to access, um, and then we're going to take all of your questions. Um, so, um, and, our, and Norma, our lead operator, will explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. So prepare your questions. Um, think about the questions you'd like to have asked, because you have two experts that you can ask, and it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. Um, so um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we are staffed primarily by oncology social workers who provide um, a host of different services, and from practical and financial assistance to a chance to talk with them about concerns or things that might be a, be a concern to you. And some of the common questions that people call us about might be um, just it's so difficult to cope with having AML or any type of cancer. Um, uh, how do I deal with it? What do I tell my friends, my family? Um, how do I talk to my children or grandchildren? Um, uh, 
what do I, if I'm working, how do I deal with it in the workplace? Um, and um, so many, many different types of questions that people have that just need a place to talk to someone about how to deal with those questions and, and concerns. And we also offer support groups, both on the telephone, so there's no need to travel anywhere, and we also have online support groups. Um, we have a, currently over 138 um, um, online support groups, so lots of them, and they're for all different um, ages and groups. And so we have them for people for, uh, for young um, adults and for middle-aged adults and older adults. We have them for caregivers, partners, spouses, um, adult children. Um, um, we also have groups for people with specific types of cancers and hematologic cancers as well. So blood cancer group or a particular types of, of solid tumor types of cancers as well. So really um, a group's almost for, and if we don't have a group that you would like and call us and, and tell us what that group might be, we often can develop that group. So, um, and you can actually um, access information about those services on our website, um, cancercare.org. Um, and um, perhaps um, most importantly, um, uh, we also have a Chris Copay Foundation, and um, in addition to our just general financial assistance programs, and we do have these education workshops. We do quite a bit of them throughout the year. Again, the idea is to make services as accessible to all of you as possible. We know that many of you live a far distance from your treating centers. Um, some of you living in rural areas. Even in an urban area, it can still take a long time to get to your treating center. Um, and to figure out how to get there and all the details. So um, we've tried to do, to create services that will really make um, help at your, so much at your fingertips to some extent. Um, and so um, with that being said, um, we now do have time for questions, a lot of time for questions. So I'm going to ask Norma um, to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And um, again, um, please bring all of our speakers on board as well. Thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit your questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star one. We have a question in front of our online participants, um, and um, so I'm going to ask this question of Dr. Stein. Do I need to get my tumor tissue tested for molecular irregularities to see if I am eligible for the new therapies? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and my answer is, uh, yeah, I think, I think you should. Uh, and, and specifically, what I mean by that is that there are a series of molecular genetic abnormalities that we always test for at the time a patient is diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. Those are abnormalities that are laid out that should be tested for in clinical practice guidelines, like uh, those guidelines from the uh, NCCN and, and other uh, international and national organizations. Um, so I think that's important because it, number one, can tell you um, help with deciding whether a patient needs an allogeneic stem cell transplant. Um, it can also guide whether we add on one of these small molecule targeted therapies um, to the initial treatment regimen. However, I also think it's important to test again for those molecular genetic abnormalities um, if, God forbid, a patient relapses, because sometimes the abnormalities that are present at diagnosis um, are different than the abnormalities that are present at relapse. Um, and you want to be sure you have a full picture of what 
that relapsed acute myeloid leukemia looks like rather than just relying on the initial um, uh, molecular genetic analysis that was done um, uh, uh, when the patient was initially diagnosed. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and uh, Dr. Pistol, do you want to add anything to that? Or? Yeah, the, I, I agree with Dr. Stein. The only other thing that I would add is that I think that another reason that it's important, um, particularly at the time of diagnosis, to really characterize the patient's leukemia is to help follow the disease over time, so to make assessments for things like MRD, measurable residual disease. So typically after the patient has received chemotherapy, most commonly induction chemotherapy, but also with other regimens, they'll get a bone marrow biopsy done, and some of those tests should be repeated um, on that marrow. For example, if a patient has something like an NPM1 mutation, um, that was known about at diagnosis, but if that's still detectable by one of these very sensitive molecular tests available, um, that may actually change some of the thinking about whether um, they need to get a bone marrow transplant or not. So maybe we were thinking they wouldn't need to, but if they haven't completely cleared their disease, then maybe that would be something that should be changed in terms of their treatment plan in the future. So just another, another reason um, to get molecular testing done if possible. And another question from our online participants for, for Dr. Percival. Um, are there any extra measures I can take during cold and flu season? I guess the immunizations. <laughs> yeah, well. that's, a, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think that um, different centers have different thoughts about um, how much isolation patients should undergo um, during the period of time when their blood counts are not normal and that kind of thing. I think um, using kind of standard hand-washing practices um, and carrying around alcohol gel and not being around people who are obviously sick are the obvious measures to do. Um, some, some centers are a lot more um, extreme and have patients in isolation for a long period of time when the blood counts are low um, and that kind of thing. Our, our center doesn't um, do that, um, and there's never really been kind of a randomized study to look into that. Um, one thing that um, has actually been looked at in a randomized study, which is a sort of slightly separate but related uh, question that comes up is how um, much people need to be careful about their diet. And so there was a randomized study that was published about 10 years ago from MD Anderson where patients were randomized to a neutropenic diet um, that only contained cooked food versus a diet that um, had some raw fruits and vegetables, albeit washed and, and sort of carefully prepared. There wasn't really a difference in outcomes for the patients that received those two sorts of diets. So we, um, you know, tend to say that it's okay for patients to have um, raw fruits and vegetables, uh, that kind of thing, which is something that's different than other centers. Obviously, if it can be peeled, it's probably better for it to be peeled. And washing everything, hands and fruits and vegetables alike, is probably important. And Dr. Stein, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I, I would add, I, I agree with everything that Dr. Percival said. I, the only thing I would add is that um, it would be important to ask, ask your uh, physician whether uh, you should get an, uh, an influenza vaccine. Um, so that's something that, that um, should be brought up. I, I tend to vaccinate um, all of my patients, assuming that I think that um, 
they will they have an immune system that will be able to create antibodies. Um, so that's one thing that that's important. But it's an important question to ask your your doctor if they don't bring it up. And and there are some questions now with you know there's a new shingles vaccine that has come out that is no longer a live vaccine. Um, and uh, it's it's another question that one may want to ask their doctor is whether um, they might benefit from this new shingles uh, vaccine that's out there. Excellent. Thank you. And pneumonia vaccine, is that something that, is that? Yeah, pneumonia that, vaccines also are important to ask about. I mean, uh, so all these vaccines are important to ask about. It's certainly important to be vaccinated. Uh, you know, the issues that come up, like, like I mentioned before, is that in someone with a, with a low immune system, depending where they are in their disease course, um, uh, you know, the vaccines may not work quite as well as, as, um, as people who have a, uh, an immune system that, that isn't having issues. But, but it's an important question to bring up um, for sure and ask your doctor. Excellent. Thank you. This is fantastic. This is really so informative for everybody. And um, um, it's an interesting question. Um, uh, one of our online participants, um, Dr. Perswell, he would just comment on this. Um, so how does garlic, turmeric, and other herbs fit into leukemia as a complementary therapy? Um, yeah, I think that's a good question, and the short answer is that we have absolutely no idea. So um, I think that uh, there's a lot of interest in complementary and alternative methods um, to try to help um, add to things like chemotherapy um, and standard regimens, but there's really very little data. So the concern, I think that a lot of patients say, you know, what, what harm could be um, added by including some of these natural therapies um, and maybe not even thinking that they're important enough to tell their doctor. The concern with that is that we really don't know how some of these um, medications, um, like if somebody's having uh, turmeric that's turmeric capsules or something like that. We don't know um, really how these might interact with standard chemotherapy. So if somebody is taking those pills of, of one sort or another um, or, or that kind of thing, then they may actually be increasing the side effects from chemotherapy. They may be decreasing the efficacy of the chemotherapy. We just really don't have the information available to say one way or the other. Um, I can't think of actually any exceptions um, to that. So I think that there's potential for decreased effectiveness of chemotherapy, for increased toxicity of chemotherapy. And then I think in the whole kind of realm of complementary and alternative medicine, there's a big question about quality control because a lot of the things that are marketed as supplements in the United States do not undergo the same level of quality control um, by the Food and Drug Administration because they are regulated in a different way. And so um, when some analyses have been done, some of these uh, don't pills don't actually contain um, whatever the, the substances that they're purported to contain and may contain a lot of other things as well. So I think that really adds to the, the murkiness of the waters. We do have a, um, a complementary 
um, an alternative medicine clinic um, at our center, and so patients who are interested in some of those therapies, which are not just limited to medications, but also include things like acupuncture um, and massage therapy and things like that. We generally, um, as a leukemia physician, I generally refer patients to that sort of clinic. I think there's a lot more evidence for some of the um, anti-nausea techniques and things like acupuncture as opposed to some of the, the supplements that um, were mentioned in the initial call or question. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Stein, do you want to add anything? Yeah, no, I would, I would just, I, 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 I feel similarly, and, and I do think that if you have the opportunity to be treated at a, at a cancer center that has a um, complementary and alternative therapy or integrative medicine program associated with that cancer center, it, I think it's a great idea to, to seek out a consultation uh, within your cancer center with that group if you're interested in these um, alternative therapies, because... Um, the doctors I know at our center who, who run our integrative medicine program are really um, very attuned to um, how medicines or alternative therapies that they may be recommending may or may not interact with, um, with the therapies, with the um, traditional therapies that, that we are prescribing for patients. Excellent. Um, and um, thank you. That's so important, actually, to really um, everything you're taking, let your doctor know. I guess that's the takeaway point here because you just don't know that, about the interaction. Is that correct? That's really um, to share any type of anything that one's taking, even if it's a particular type of tea or something, that really should share that with your healthcare team so that they know um, about, about your treatments. That's very important um, and how it impacts your treatments. So, um, so here's a question from someone. I'm uh, for Dr. Percival. I'm about to start chemo. How should I prepare? Um, so I, that's a little bit of a general question because um, I think one of the things we've talked about is that there are really varying intensities of chemotherapy. Um, I think that uh, it's important to um, think about um, communicating well with people around you, both family and caregivers, as well as the kind of physician's team um, and nurses that are helping to take care of you, really communicating if something changes or something seems different because like Dr. Stein said, with some of the side effects, we really, you know, there are listed percentages for all of these things that will happen with chemotherapy options, but any one person is unlikely to have um, any or all of those side effects. So I think that we can't often help, um, you know, if an anti-nausea pill doesn't seem to be working that well for an individual patient, we need to know that it's not working well before we can suggest other alternatives. So I think being attuned to that, I think also patients do well when they um, have a good functional status. And so I think there's so little that patients can control during this time period, but eating and exercising when they're feeling well are things that are small things seemingly that they can control but actually um, are really important because often chemotherapy will bring everybody down a notch or two and if you are starting from a higher functional status then you're more likely to rebound well after the side effects of chemotherapy wear off. So I don't know if that helps to address some of it. Maybe Dr. Stein has other things to add. Thank you so much. And Dr. Stein, do you wish to add anything? Yeah, I, I would add that 
during chemotherapy, you know, one of the things I think that is a problem with hospitals, at least that I've worked in and in the United States of America in general and maybe all over the world, is that often the, the bed is the centerpiece of the hospital room. And um, that creates a situation where patients sometimes feel that they sort of have to be lying in bed um, or sitting in bed. And uh, what I found is that, is that patients tend to feel better and maybe even be less weak at the end of the chemotherapy if they're really out of bed as much as they would have been out of bed at home. So I encourage all of my patients, I say, you know, the bed is for going to sleep at night um, unless you're not feeling well. If you're not feeling well, lie down in bed like if you were sick. But if you are feeling well, um, you know, stay out of the bed, walk around in, in the hallways. Often uh, cancer hospitals will have a recreation room or a room that doesn't look like a, um, like a, a doctor's office where, where patients can congregate and may have some activities. And, and I encourage my patients to, to do that. And really, if they can, if they're feeling up to it, really only use the bed for uh, maybe short naps and nighttime sleeping. Excellent. Yeah, Ms. Gampa, that's never come up on the calls before, and that's such a, a wonderful recommendation. Thank you. That's really, um, yeah, that's, that's So everybody, please keep that with you, uh, you know, carry that around with you. It's really important, uh, I think. Uh, thank you. That's I often I agree with everything Dr. Stein said, and I often tell patients to actually pack their walking shoes when they are going to the hospital. Um, at, in our leukemia unit, it actually gets a little bit competitive among some of the patients um, <laughs> because they get mile stickers on their that they can put on their door after they've completed the requisite number of laps around the unit. And so um, I'm not saying everything needs to be a competition, but if that is something that motivates you to walk more, then, then I'm all for it. Oh, this is wonderful. This is really so pack your walking shoes. So that's really be prepared to walk. Don't take slippers. Take your walking shoes. That's really a wonderful, um, a wonderful way to phrase this, really. Thank you. Um, so another question um, from one of our uh, my participants and uh, for Dr. Percival. Um, should I get a second opinion before starting treatment? Um, you know, I, 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 if you were thinking about it, as I alluded to, I, I generally think it's worth getting a second opinion. Um, sometimes that's much easier said than done for patients, um, like you alluded to, Dr. Messner, who live um, rather far from um, an oncologist, let alone um, a, maybe a larger academic center where they might be more likely to get a second opinion. Um, but I generally would favor getting a second opinion um, because I think that it can provide valuable information and kind of confirm a plan or possibly change a plan. Um, but I, I think that whether to do it before or after treatment, um, you know, I think sometimes depends on the logistics of getting an appointment and also the pace of the patient's disease and how quickly they need to undergo treatment. I mentioned that acute leukemia is called acute because it presents generally in a relatively rapid time frame, and so we often don't want to delay treatment for a long period of time. On the other hand, some patients can be stable as outpatients for a period of 
days or weeks that might allow them to be able to get a second opinion. And it's often challenging um, for somebody who is giving a second opinion um, to change the treatment plan if one has already been enacted. Um, it may change eligibility for clinical trials because some trials target patients who have newly diagnosed leukemia. And so if they've received treatment, they're no longer newly diagnosed. They've actually received treatment. And so eligible for, for some trials. So it sort of depends on what somebody is seeking to get out of a second opinion, but generally I, I would advise getting one if you're thinking about it. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Stein, do you wish to add anything? Uh, no, I agree with I agree with everything that was just said. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, excellent. And um, another question. Um, so I have a history of myelodysplastic syndrome. Should I get tested for AML? So, Dr. Stein, if you could address this in a general way. Um, well, in a patient who has, generally speaking, a patient who has myelodysplastic syndrome um, is being followed, you know, fairly closely by um, a hematologist who specializes in that disease. And the hematologist will um, usually be attuned to whether the disease may be progressing or not into something um, like acute myeloid leukemia. So in, in my practice, in my patients with myelodysplastic syndrome, um, so I'll know they have myelodysplastic syndrome, and I, I don't typically, if everything seems stable and their blood work seems stable and they're doing well and they haven't, they're not needing a lot of transfusions or not needing any transfusions, um, and there, there's not a reason for treatment yet. I don't typically do um, bone marrow biopsies to look for AML at fixed intervals. I, what I do is I um, let the bone marrow biopsies be guided by how the patient is doing. So if the patient is feeling well and they have relative and they have blood counts that are not changing, um, then I don't I don't um, uh, go go doing sort of a fixed schedule of, of bone marrow biopsies to look for AML. Thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Percival, do you wish to add anything? Or? No, I don't have anything to add. Okay. I think, oh, sorry, actually, I do. Sorry, I'll say one <laughs> quick thing. Um, um, I, I think also myelodysplastic syndrome, there's a, a great spectrum of disease with MDS. So some patients really um, have. Um, I, I won't say it's a, a milder disease, but kind of a milder form of the disease where they can be stable with a watch-and-wait approach without any intervention or any chemotherapy or anything for many years. Some may never need treatment. And then there are other patients with MDS who are much closer to leukemia, so they may have a higher percentage of blasts. Um, in their bone marrow, and they may, um, in fact, have disease that behaves more like an acute leukemia rather than this more indolent, low-grade myelodysplastic syndrome. So I think, like Dr. Stein was saying, clinically, those patients um, present differently in terms of how they feel and in terms of how their blood counts change. And so um, we, we use some scoring systems to help um, figure out what patients need to get treatment and that kind of thing. But um, the overall message I agree with of we don't routinely just monitor doing bone marrow biopsies to assess for changes. The blood counts can tell us a lot and how the patient's feeling tell, tell us a lot as well. 
Thank you. Thank you. This was very, very informative. And I have to say, great questions and great responses. And say, team, you get to see really this wonderful team of physicians really talking to you about about some of the concerns or questions you may have. It's really, it really is very helpful on a call. Um, so thank you. Um, and the question now um, for Dr. Percival. Um, so um, a clinical trial for a patient who had a previous treatment that wasn't successful, will they be able to present in other, in other trials, and what is the downtime in between trials? And a kind of general question, um, if you could just um, address that. Um, um, yeah, I, I think that um, while there are some kind of general things that guide the eligibility criteria for clinical trials, um, each trial is constructed differently and has different eligibility criteria. So it's it's kind of hard to answer that question um, without knowing some more specifics. We, for example, have some clinical trials at our center for patients with relapsed or refractory leukemia, meaning that the disease has come back after being initially in a remission. That would be a relapse or didn't really respond to the initial chemotherapy that was given. That's refractory disease. Um, and some of them say that patients can only have had one or two previous lines of therapy. So that would be a study that you know might not be a, an option for somebody who has received several lines of therapy for their leukemia. But other studies don't have that kind of restriction in the eligibility criteria. So it's pretty study specific. The other thing that I guess I would address in terms of the downtime um, between trials, that often is also written into the eligibility criteria. So some studies may say that they require a washout period with no previous chemotherapy, whether that's part of a clinical trial or standard chemotherapy agents for 14 days, sometimes 21 days, sometimes 28 days. Those are all sort of typical numbers, but it's really pretty study specific. And then the last thing I'll say is that sometimes there are um, studies that may be conducted at, at multiple centers or even at one center, but um, there may not be a slot available on that study at a particular time, and that may be because they are waiting to make a determination about changing the dose depending on how effective um, a study, a drug has been in previous patients or how um, or what kind of side effects and toxicities patients have had in a previous dose level um, or something like that. So there may not always be a slot available on a trial. So I think when patients are thinking about trials, it's important to have an open mind um, about what may or may not be available for them. Um, a lot of times seeing what, what is available at any one point in time may change. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Stein, do you wish to add anything? No, I, that, was, that was great. Okay. Um, and so now a question for Dr. Stein. Um, what can I expect from a bone marrow biopsy and how can I prepare for it? Good question. So um, I'll tell you the experience that my patients have. So when we do a bone marrow biopsy, typically what we do, it's a procedure that um, is done in our center in many cases where the patient is awake. Um, you go to a room that looks like a standard exam room. Um, you lie down uh, on your stomach. Sometimes you might be on your side. And the person doing the bone marrow biopsy will put a little bit of lidocaine, which is sort of like novocaine, into the skin to, um, to anesthetize 
the skin overlying the bone where they're going to do the bone marrow biopsy, and then they'll also anesthetize with local anesthesia the bone itself. Um, then, and you won't be seeing any of this because it's on your typically on you know done in your in uh, the back part of your pelvis. Um, you know, a needle is put in to to extract some of the um, liquid part of the bone marrow, and then a small uh, chip of bone called a core biopsy uh, is obtained. I think what patients most typically experience is a little bit of discomfort when the initial anesthetic is going in. It can feel a little bit like a bee sting. Sometimes like if you've had, again, like a Novocaine shot at the dentist, and, and um, you can feel like that a little bit. Um, but then the other thing that people can feel is when it's anesthetized well, people will feel this sense of a lot of pressure, um, not so much pain, but a lot of pressure as the needle is going in to do the bone marrow uh, aspiration and biopsy. And sometimes when that liquid part of the bone marrow is being uh, taken out, people can feel sort of a jolt of um, discomfort, which I have been told is akin to when you go to the dentist and, you know, they're drilling and they, or they're cleaning your teeth, and they kind of like hit a nerve and you're like, ah. Um, now, there are some centers, and, and we've started doing this at our center, um, where people can get conscious sedation for bone marrow biopsies. Um, the issue that sometimes comes up is that it can take a little bit of time for that to be arranged, and sometimes you want to know the answer about someone has acute myeloid leukemia um, uh, in a rapid fashion. Um, I would say that, that if a bone marrow biopsy is done well, it, it should not be as uncomfortable as people um, uh, might make it out to be. So when a bone marrow biopsy is done well, there should really be a minimum amount of discomfort. Um, and the, after the procedure, um, patients typically don't need more than to take a Tylenol if they're having any residual soreness um, at the site of the bone marrow testing. Thank you, because that is, that is something people are always kind of concerned about. So you've certainly made it much more understandable to people in terms of all that's done to make it um, not an uncomfortable procedure. And um, so, Dr. Um, Bristol, do you want to add anything to that? No, I don't have anything to add. That was a great description of Amero, and the description that he provided is similar to what my patients also say in terms of how um, it's gone for them. So we really have taken some of the mystery out of having a bone marrow um, biopsy, and I hope that for many of you listening that this is, is helpful, and that um, and I and I and now that you know the things that can be done to minimize any discomfort, you can actually well can they discuss that with the healthcare team and say now how are you going to make this less comfortable for me, or can they say that to them actually and go over what they've heard? What do you is that something that they could ask? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 always um, yes. I, I think it's always important to to express your concerns. Like so, we'll, I'll have patients that come in and they, and they'll say to me, you know, what, I'm just so anxious about this bone marrow biopsy. I've heard so much about it. And then you know, we might tell them to take um, you know a small dose of an anti-anxiety medicine 30 minutes before the procedure, which which uh, just orally, which really kind of makes them feel better. I mean, it it has a huge it makes a huge difference in in the anticipatory. Um, uh, uh, um, nervousness, which can contribute to the pain. I mean, I can tell you when I go to the when I go to the dentist, I'm I'm anxious the, the, you know, before I even get into the chair, right? Because I sort of know what it's going to feel like, um, and and um, you know, it's important to communicate that to to your physician. Excellent. Thank you.
and anything else you can think of, Dr. Percival, as well? Nope, I agree. Okay, okay, excellent. Okay. Wow, this has been an amazing call. Um, so the, another question, and, and this one is uh, probably our last question, is um, so I live in a rural area. How can I receive the best care with limited resources in terms of accessing um, you know, clinical trials or, or, um, or just care in general? Um, so, um, and I know that many centers have outreach to those, to rural areas, so that um, um, uh, Dr. Purcell, do you want to start with that question? Um, sure. So I think that being, um, you know, as educated as possible about your disease and participating in calls like this and, you know, information provided by other um, helpful patient advocacy groups like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society or the American Cancer Society or any number of other um, reputable online sources can be very helpful. Um, but I, I think that it's also important to discuss your concerns with your physician. I think, you know, if it's feasible to do even a one-time consultation um, with another uh, physician at a perhaps more specialized academic center, that, that can often be very helpful. You know, we take care of patients um, in Seattle at the University of Washington. We have this sort of five-state area without another medical school, so we often see people from Montana or Alaska or Idaho, um, that kind of thing, that come to Washington State um, for part of their care. Um, sometimes um, at centers like ours, there are um, resources available, particularly for patients who are undergoing a procedure like a bone marrow transplant, which can really only be done at a specialized center to help provide um, for housing, whether that's through the patient's insurance or through um, some other patient funding that is provided uh, for some patients. So I think that, you know, without looking into some of the resources and that kind of thing, it's hard to comment, but I, I think that trying to be as well-informed as possible is the first step um, towards towards doing well. Excellent. Dr. Stein, do you want to add anything to that? No, I, I completely agree. Yeah. And and actually, you know, that um, there are all these organizations, you're going to be getting them when you get the evaluation form, but all these resources that you can contact, um, and so the American Cancer Society does have Hope Lodges in many different um uh, cancer centers throughout the country, um, places where people can stay when they're undergoing treatment. Um, also, um, uh, there are a lot of resources out there that would be very hard for each of you to know individually. But a lot of these um, leukemia lymphoma societies certainly has a tremendous. Um, uh, they have a call center and just a tremendous amount of resources as well. As, and we also do. Our staff also can help with that. Our oncology social work staff can help. So, there's, but there's and that's just I just mentioned three, but there's so many more than that out there. And so um, uh, I should also mention the American Cancer Society has a 24-hour call center, 365 days a year. So that actually, um, you know, no matter when when it is, you can certainly call them. And although there may, if it's a question for your physician, of course you want to ask them. But if it's something you need really to kind of begin to problem solve how to get how to do something and it and there's a quick time frame that you have to do that in it's a place that you can call as often as you need to um, and and most of the others work kind of during business hours but you can call them and their staff will be very helpful and and, and in this instance more is sometimes better than less sometimes they say you know you should call one place, but it's okay to call multiple places. Multiple places can offer you different types of help. Also, many different organizations have um, foundations that can help with uh, paying for some of the costs 
that someone from a rural area may incur in traveling. So that's another thing just to be aware of so that, again, and if you call one of the resources, the major resources, and we'll be giving them to you, they actually will be able to um, very much help you to um, figure out um, you know, they'll know if they don't have it, they'll be able to recommend who does have it. So in that respect, you don't have to do all this homework yourself. So I want to thank our speakers. You've just been phenomenal. This has been an amazing uh, program today, I have to say, both with our speakers, the questions asked, and the interchange between the speakers has just been phenomenal. And I, I also want to thank all of you who've been listening as well, and all of you who are on the call today. Um, and um, as we're about to conclude the call, um, I know there are many more questions in queue. So um, the question is, how do you get your questions answered? So I often, of course, would not want to sidestep your healthcare team. So definitely you want to talk to your healthcare team. But in addition to that, um, certainly for any medical questions you may have or questions, some of the questions like you've asked today, I can't recommend enough the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. You'll be getting that information in your materials after the call today. Um, that's a wonderful resource for you. Um, the American Cancer Society, oh, those are organizations that are equipped to deal with any medical questions you may have. And the National Cancer Institute, um, they also have both a, um, and all of them have both um, 800 numbers, but they also have websites. And for people internationally, um, the National Cancer Institute does have a live chat feature, so you can post your question, a medical question, and they'll answer it. And for those of you who would like to get some support and just some counseling services or just some help in, in terms of or practical help with just dealing with, you, can't, you certainly can call cancer care, and our oncology social work staff are more than help, ha happy to help you um, to, to problem solve where and how you can get the best um, resources and care um, and to help you think that through any questions that you may have or concerns or, or desire to just be in a, in, a, in a support group where you can kind of share resources with each other. That's also a very um, helpful thing as well. So, um, I, and also as we conclude the call, I don't want any one of you to feel you're alone. We would not want you to feel alone. We want you to know that you're now part of a, really a community or a neighborhood of support and we're all here to help you. And so to some extent, we do know that you will at times feel alone. But indeed, you know, there, um, so those are natural feelings to have. But just to know, tuck away that there are all these resources out there and there's simply a phone call or a mouth click away to access them and to get the help that you need. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This, this does conclude the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.